Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Sorts Podcast. I'm your host, dietitian, author, and resident food nerd around here, Desiree Nielsen. And today we have got a juicy, juicy episode coming your way because I am talking to food culture writer and plant-based human, Alicia Kennedy. And we're going to talk about gender politics, restaurant culture, and food. You know, so a light, fluffy topic. Alicia is a writer from Long Island based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. She writes a weekly newsletter on food culture, media, and politics called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. And she has a book forthcoming from Beacon Press called Meatless. I honestly have no idea how I heard about Alicia Kennedy's work at first, but I turned into a fan as soon as I signed up for her weekly newsletter. She is smart, passionate, and she speaks her mind on all of the ways that politics, media, and culture play into how and what we eat. So she's the perfect person to have this conversation with. And I really don't think we talk enough about this. We don't talk about food culture. We don't talk about gender roles in food enough. And it's something we need to examine as a society because it's absolutely critical for creating a more just and sustainable food system. There are so many ways in which food is inherently gendered. For example, food preparation and feeding a family is historically considered women's work and therefore greatly undervalued in our society. And yet fine dining and these big fancy restaurants and celebrity chef culture is overwhelmingly male. And a few months back, I read Alicia's newsletter on fine dining and it really struck a chord. And it's the whole reason I contacted her for this podcast because fine dining is so synonymous with eating expensive cuts of meat, which are also very much connected to Eurocentric ideals of masculinity in our society. And this shows up in so many ways, such as like keto and paleo diets being associated with gym culture and even like tech bro culture. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you and I can't wait to hear what you think. Let's keep the conversation going by chatting with us on Instagram at the all sorts pod or join us on our free online community nutrition with Desiree. The link to join us is in the show notes. Now let's get going. Hey, Alicia, I am so excited to talk to you on the All Sorts Pod. And I want to start by saying congrats on your wedding. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was super impressed because I saw you were going to Montreal for your honeymoon. And like, I don't know, growing up in Canada, it's always that very underdog, like the big America, everything is better, <laughs> like in the States and like little Canada, no one knows about you. So like, do you have a connection to Montreal or like, were you just there for the food, which is a significant reason to go? Well, we were there mainly for the food. Also, I mean, I grew up loving kids in the hall. So I, I think Canada is cool. And so, but for this occasion, I had been to Montreal once before my new husband had never been there. Not that there's an old husband. He is, it, we're just <laughs> freshly married. But we were thinking of going to Europe, of course, but basically we got married in a really kind of hurried way because in Puerto Rico, there's a lot of bureaucracy around these sorts of things. And so we did it in New York, but getting a appointment in New York for our marriage license was like such a struggle because they're so backed up after the pandemic. And yeah. so my then fiance got us an appointment. We had to use the appointment, get married within 60 days. So like plan the whole wedding thing in 60 days. And then we had to plan also the honeymoon, obviously in that much time, obviously we could have waited, but it, it, I'm really glad we didn't because it was nice to get away after all this time, not getting away. And, and just before new variants of COVID are popping up as well. So yeah, we were looking at flights to Europe. It was so expensive. I was like, let's just get a car and do a road trip around the Northeast. And then we realized that would be kind of a schlep to go to different cities. And so we were like, all right, Montreal. <laughs> and that was that because <laughs> we could drive there and the land borders were open and it's a great city. Yeah. It is a great city for anyone who's never been like, it's just, it is sort of the most European we get here in Canada, but like there's so much <laughs> life, like in Vancouver, 
most people who live here are like, it's a very boring, like nappy type city, you know, like uh-huh. we're, I think of it as very outdoorsy, right? It is very outdoorsy. Like we go to bed early, we are up early to hike or like go to, you know, go for a bike ride, but there's mm-hmm. not as much as I like to think we have culture here. It's nowhere near Montreal, like Montreal yeah. is super cool. <laughs> <laughs> So I was uh, poking around the internet in preparation for this interview and I stumbled upon like a very formative childhood temperament that like you and I have in common. We both hated sandwiches as kids. I know most people probably cannot imagine like, how can you not like like two things in between bread? So can you tell me about like why you did not like sandwiches as a kid? And also like, how's your relationship with like the witch today? <laughs> I actually just had a sandwich for lunch. So now I love sandwiches of all sorts. But when I was a kid, the problem was that the bread wasn't good. And I still, you know, I have, I have snobbish tendencies around food for sure. And they were developed when I was very young, but I never liked like I wouldn't eat a hamburger on a burger bun from like the store. I wouldn't eat a hot dog on the bun. I would just eat them plain because I just found that bread, that squishy, like white bread texture, really, really off-putting. And, you know, I didn't, I grew up on Long Island on the South shore. I didn't grow up among like people making sourdough or making whole wheat bread or something like that. Like I had a classic American suburban upbringing. And so the only thing that was around was that squishy white bread, maybe some whole wheat bread or whatever, whatever they offered you at the diner with your (laughs) breakfast. I would always get an English muffin. I did like English muffins, but with just butter on them. And I loved bagels with butter on them. But, you know, I had, and I've explained this recently. I think when I was in Montreal, I was explaining to my husband, like, I can remember the first time I ate bread that I liked, which I think is such a strange thing. I was maybe in middle school and there was something called like a white peasant, a peasant loaf, I think it was called, (laughs) which was basically like, it was probably sourdough, but it was a round and crusty and was like a French peasant loaf. That's what it was called at the supermarket. And my mom got it. And I was like, actually, this is good. I didn't realize I never knew bread could be good. And so I had that like epiphany about bread when I was in middle school, but I still didn't enjoy sandwiches so much until much later in life. And like a lot of things, it's interesting that I got into a lot of foods when I was able to eat them in a non-American way, which is like so cliche for me and my perspective on things, but like eating banh mi or eating, yeah, like just different kinds of sandwiches from different cultures made me more into sandwiches, you know, like Americanized, like or Italian heroes from the deli that people always had. At the, I was like, Ugh, this is gross to me. Oh, and when panini started to get cool, that was also a big moment because I I really, I still don't like to eat bread if it's not toasted. So there were all these things that had to happen for me to enjoy sandwiches. <laughs> but like basically the culinary culture had to catch up to my child palate, which for whatever reason was really, really discerning around bread. I mean, I liked a lot of crappy things too. Like I ate McDonald's chicken nuggets. I ate, you know, I ate whatever, but like bread for me was very, very... I was very peculiar and picky about it. And and the other thing that I also didn't like as a kid that I now like, but it's uh, for similar reasons is mustard. Like when I was a kid, I didn't like mustard because the only mustard I ever saw was like the white French, like yellow French's mustard. Yeah. And once I realized that there's like this wealth of mustard available in the world, I was like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) Honey, I'm trying to think like, when did I start to like sandwiches? Because it was the same thing. I was like, I would eat toast, but like put the things in the like toast. No. And I think it's probably when I left home as a teenager. So it coincided with traveling. Hello, Panini is mm-hmm. yes. one of the greatest inventions of our lifetime. <laughs> but then also it's like, oh, I had to feed myself. And I was like, well, yeah. sandwiches are easy. <laughs> <Boom>. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I learned about your work. I have no idea how I learned about your work, but then I got to know you through your newsletter, which is incredible. It's called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, which everyone sub- should subscribe to immediately. How did you get started doing the newsletter? Because you had a podcast before Meatless, right? Yes, I did have a podcast before that. I've been writing forever. I used to work at New York Magazine as a copy editor. I started writing about food in 2015 after I had spent a year as a vegan baker. (laughs) And so I, I spent that year as a vegan baker, decided I actually wanted to write about food instead 
And so I was, I've been doing that since 2015. I used to be a contributing writer for the Village Voice. I had a very short-lived column for Nylon before they got bought out by BDG. And then, you know, I've written for Eater. I've written for, you know, everywhere. And then I, at the start of the pandemic, well, it was a little bit before the pandemic that I started the newsletter. I had been playing around with the idea of doing a Substack just because for my entire life, I've always been really unquestioning about joining different platforms on the internet. Like I just, you know, I'm like, oh, people are here now. Okay, let's do that. The one thing I don't do is TikTok because I'm just afraid of it. And so, but I started a account, I had played around with it. And then when I, one of my contributing editor jobs at Edible Brooklyn, Edible Manhattan was cut because of budgetary reasons. And I knew that my job at Tenderly as a contributing writer, which was a vegan website, was definitely also on its way out. Like I knew Medium was due for a pivot and they were the host company for that magazine. (laughs) And so I was like, huh, I should try and make something else happen. But what I thought I was going to do with the newsletter was just kind of write little essays, like keep people abreast of my life, my publications, what I'm cooking, like just be, make it a way to keep my, me in people's minds. And so that I would get work. But what ended up happening is that I started to take it a little bit more seriously when I, I really enjoyed writing a piece that was super angry about an episode of David Chang's show, Ugly Delicious. (laughs) Because there was an episode about steak and I just thought it was freaking awful and like just so my just so bad. And so I just wrote about that and I was like, oh, this is fun. I get to just kind of spout off on and and, you know, I'm a very this word is very pretentious, but like I'm a very interdisciplinary writer And so it was really interesting to write in a way in my own space where I could combine everything that I care about instead of always trying to have a really narrow focus for a very specific reader. And so that's kind of, I realized I could do that and people would dig it. And so I just kept doing it. And then I decided when I needed to launch paid subscriber benefits, it was really easy for me to kind of reach back into the the skill I had developed with Meatless and just interview people and put that out there. The podcast is relaunching for the new year because Substack is paying for audio production as part of their investment in food writing. And so it's exciting that it's going to come back with like some music. And actually the inspiration I sent the producer was the kids in the hall theme song. (laughs) Because that's like my dream. And so yeah, I'm excited about it. But yeah, I I just kind of have developed my voice with it through time, through just doing it. I've developed the audience really organically and through just being consistent, I think. And it's been really it's been really great, life-changing obviously. And so, yeah, I'm just going to keep it up. It's I'm going to also next year the podcast will be relaunched so it'll be for everybody and not just a paid subscriber benefit. And I'm also going to keep doing recipes and like cooking emails every week, trying to, you know, just get people to cook more vegetables and, and bake more vegan things. So it's been really exciting to get to control it and get to evolve it on my own terms. Yeah. It's, I, you know, people have, I know, uh, Anna Sulan Massing who has a great newsletter called sourced, you know, she's compared newsletters to zines and, and it really is that way. It's, it's really, it's DIY, which is stressful at times, but at the same time, it's so worthwhile to get to define the parameters of your own creativity and to, you know, try new things that, you know, maybe they work, maybe they don't, maybe they're a hit, maybe they're not. Like a lot of my best performing pieces have had nothing to do with food. So that's been fun. And so, yeah, it's just a really interesting, you know, way of, of writing and publishing. And I'm glad that I kind of just fell into it. Yeah. And I, you know, if there's something good about the internet, I think, and it's funny that you said zines because it's exactly what Substack feels like to me, like the quality of writers and writing coming out on Substacks, you know, you are completely self-directed. So this can be you and it's, Mm -hmm. it is sort of the new magazine. I mean, internet is killing magazines, which also (laughs) makes me cry (laughs) because I love, always loved magazines, but it's this idea that you can own your channels and own your content because 
you put stuff on Instagram, you put stuff on medium and it's feeding someone else's coffers and that's garbage. Like I think where we need to go is that the people who are, you know, putting their blood, sweat and tears into all of this great work, like actually get to own that, actually get to profit from it. And yeah, I love Substack for that. So in one of your recent issues, and, and this is the one that really sort of like got my like fire burning to talk to you. (laughs) You wrote about fine dining, plant-based cuisine and gender. And so you said, I'm obviously a broken record on meat equals masculinity, vegetables equals femininity in U.S. society. I'm a broken record that male chefs are easily understood as quote unquote great, while women are not, unless they display masculine traits in their bravado or cooking. So (laughs) the biggest thing for me, because like my feminist was like, yes, (laughs) but like in school, you know, because I'm a dietitian, which is again, overwhelmingly a feminine discipline for a whole bunch of reasons we can talk about later. But I had this amazing prof named Gwen Chapman and her work largely centered around gender and food. And so she did like qualitative research in fire halls because here you had, so not chefs, but a very male dominated profession. And somehow this like culture has been created where it is status to cook well for your unit, which is like so cool and so different. And like, so how did we get to this place in your, in your opinion, how did we get (laughs) to this place where it's expected that like men are having steak, women, the salad, like, where do you think this genderization of like food choices comes from? Well, it, you know, I'm sure you know The Sexual Politics of Meat by Carol Adams. And I mean, it comes from so many different places. It's a constellation of oppression (laughs) that that (laughs) has led us to this point. Yeah. So when we're talking about chefs, the idea in the, in the Western white Western culture is, is that it is a man. This comes from the whole French system that was developed by Escoffier about the brigade in the kitchen. This is also why chef culture has historically been really, you know, it's hierarchical, it's, it's militant. It's, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen type thing. We had Paul Bocuse, the famous Leonese chef who's passed away recently, you know, in the seventies saying that women can't cook. And then you had the French food writer, Madeleine Camon saying, Actually, French cooking is all about women. Women are the the stewards of French cooking. But that perspective still holds that it's the men are chefs, the women are cooks. And and this is something people have talked about. The British writer James Hansen did an amazing piece on this for Taste a few years ago that I still reference all the time. But it's very pervasive. And so it makes sense to me that your teacher went into a firehouse, which is very masculine and found a competitive nature in the kitchen rather than a communal sense of, you know, feeding people, nourishing people. I'm sure it would, it was very competitive (laughs) about who's the best. (laughs) And that's just about masculinity and the ways it manifests. But there's also the idea that women have to be thin and men have a lot more leeway in that. Fat phobia is very real for any gender, but at the same time, you know, women are expected to have a dainty appetite to keep themselves looking a certain way. And so, of course, women start to be associated with salads. And, you know, this is why, you know, I'm sure any woman has had the experience where they went out to dinner with someone who was male and then they, they ordered the bigger meal and, but they were presented with the lighter meal because they, they were perceived to be the person who ordered something less heavy. So it's, it's all of this. And it's interesting. One of the more interesting aspects of it to me is when a female chef gets understood as a great chef, like someone like Gabrielle Hamilton, you know, whose memoir was called blood bones and butter you know, whose cooking is extremely, you know, animal centric. That's what's compelling to me. April Bloomfield, a woman whose cooking was very nose to tail dining, 
very held up as a significant great chef. And it's because they are displaying those masculine characteristics, that masculine relationship to consumption and are seen as being able to, you know, wield a butcher's knife. And that's, that's what's necessary. Meanwhile, I mean, my example always is Amanda Cohen of Dirt Candy in New York, who's had such fantastic longevity with her vegetable forward restaurant and, you know, has really been a pioneer in a, in a few ways in terms of hospitality, payment, tipping benefits for workers. And there's a lot less attention paid to the way she runs her restaurant. There's a lot because she's doing feminine food or what is understood as feminine food, which is, you know, vegetables and it's the most beautiful vegetables, but it's understood as feminine. And so it's, it's a very, it's not strange. It's just so banal that it's, um, that it's, it's almost difficult to explain because it's so just embedded in the way we think about food in the U S you know, when I point these things out, that's why I said in that piece, it's like, I'm a broken record, but it's like, how are these things still happening? They still happen over and over again, you know, where someone like Daniel Hum decides one day he's a vegan chef and then everyone has to go and cough up the $500 for the meal, et cetera. It's like, why? It's like everyone went like a zombie to to 11 Madison Park. And then even when they weren't happy with the, it's just, it was such a really telling moment about how male chefs are perceived And the only reason these critics had to engage with vegan food was because it was a great male chef who had proven himself with meat, with an omnivorous menu. And it's like, how how long are you going to be that obvious and banal as restaurant critics? And so I was happy. I guess maybe someone sent it to Pete Wells at the New York Times or he did it on his own. But he went to a Caribbean vegan restaurant in Brooklyn for his last review. But he still had a paragraph about like... It's because of Impossible and Beyond and Tyson that now people are caring about veganism. I don't know. It was just such, like for me, who's like, I'm not a trained historian, but I focus so much on the history of vegetarian food. I was just like, this is so, this is just like the popular and maybe conception of what this has looked like. But it's like, this is a cuisine that's been developing over 50 years And it's had a lot of missteps and it's had a lot of blind spots, but at the same time, you can't just be like, oh, well, now that Impossible and Beyond are making things and Tyson is getting in the business, now it's interesting. It's still such a misconception about the whole realm of of meatless food, which... Yes, drives me nuts. So <laughs> in some, yeah, it's just very, very banal and so obvious. And, and and that's what drives me nuts about it is that I have to keep saying the same thing over and over again because people in positions of authority and power and influence are just not taking enough of a considered look at the way they understand gender and its relationship to food and cooking. And I think that, you know, this whole thing really speaks to how much we give lip service to the the changes we say are important to us, but we sort of refuse to examine on a daily basis how these things play out. Like, I'm so glad that you mentioned Amanda Cohen because I've had the pleasure of eating at Dirt Candy and it was just this mind-blowing meal. And honestly, I think that her food has done more to drive sort of like modern plant-based cooking than a lot of other folks. And I get a lot of cookbooks sent to me and they sent the Eric Ripert vegetable simple. So again, we have this traditional male, you know, fancy, fancy male chef. And I was utterly shocked by the book because there was almost no creativity, almost no innovation. I was like, here's a tomato. And I was like, are you kidding me? There's a tomato. And I'm like, why are, why are we excited about this again? Because we've created this sort of hierarchical system where like the old white dude must be the best. So if the old white dude is going to give me a tomato, it's an important tomato. Whereas people who are actually innovating in this space and, and choosing to re-examine, like how do, how do we run back a house? Like people aren't getting paid 
how are people working 14 hours a day for me and barely can make ends meet? Like it's, it's not just women fitting in and that's what we had to do to survive, but like women fitting in, doing what the boys do, butchering, you know, running that hardcore, you know, kitchen, but actually fully cracking it open and being like, what the hell should this look like going forward? Which is, yeah, so incredibly difficult. It's still too (laughs) difficult to do. Like it is 20, when this comes out, 2022. And it's like way too difficult to do that. Like, what do you think needs to happen in order to start breaking down these boundaries? Like, like, where do you see, you know, kitchens like dirt candy, like where do you see the sort of changes being made and, and what kind of conversations do we have to stop sort of like, yeah, women are the at-home cooks, not the great chefs versus like, this is how we run a kitchen. This is how it's always going to be like, like, where do you think this change has to happen? And like, do you think it's going to happen? <laughs> I think it has to happen with real solidarity between like media workers and restaurant workers. And this is my like refrain now is that once food writers, people who work in the media don't see themselves as different and having much different interests from people who work in restaurants, we're not going to see the narrative shift because until you know, someone who expects to get benefits from their employer, expects to have paid time off, expects to have sick time, expects to, you know, be able to go off in the middle of the day and get a vaccine booster. You know, they expect that. Restaurant workers do not expect that. They do not get that. And so this has been my new thing is is to be like, we have to understand ourselves as having the same interests and understand that we're in solidarity with as workers we are we are in solidarity we need to fight for the same things we need to in the united states get universal health care because that's going to make things different for everybody we need to have mandatory paid time off we need to have mandatory sick time these need to be things on a federal level that the states can't make decisions willy-nilly. We need to have a minimum wage that is actually livable. We need to end the tipped minimum wage of $2.13 so that no one is ever going home or, or without enough money to feed themselves after serving food to other people. You know, so... I mean, we saw the news today. It's like inflation is so wild that prices have gone up of everything. No one's have people's wages gone up. No, you know, we're everyone is still struggling. And so for me, what I think is a real problem is that is that when you are a food writer and you're successful and you're in the big magazines, you're seeing yourself as equal to the chef and you're seeing yourself as the you know, uh, seeing eye to eye with that person rather than with the person who's serving you. And so I think that this is kind of the, this has to be the next step is to stop having a paternalistic gaze upon the service industry. Because even when people are trying to write nice things about it, it's just so, it's just so clear that either they've never worked in the industry or they it's been so long that they've forgotten what it's like. I was last bartending in 2019. And so, you know, this is this is a real issue. And and I don't think that we're going to see it change until that gaze changes and until the gatekeepers change and until there's real class difference in media. There really isn't class difference. And this is, I mean, it's because, you know, college is wildly expensive too. So that's another political issue that we have to even the playing field with, with, you know, public college needs to be free. This needs to be publicly mandated. Student loan debt needs to be wiped away. It's predatory and it's horrifying, you know? And so these are very American problems (laughs) that I'm listing, but at the same time, these are the problems that face the restaurant industry and they're the problems that face every worker. And I, you know, we'll, we could see different differences in media if we start to have different people of different classes, class backgrounds in media, making it to media. If we start seeing people of different types of educations in media and not just elite universities all the time, these are things that really, really hold back the conversation around food, I think. And also when we're talking about specifically what kind of food gets talked about the most, and if we're talking specifically about plant-based or vegetarian food, I do think that like, you know, Eric Repair is kind of dabbling in it. You know, Francis Malman in Argentina has a vegan daughter, I think, and so has been dabbling in veg- vegan food. Instead of looking at the people who are not dabbling, the people who have a 
you know, have something to gain and, or, or are fighting for something, you know, which, which isn't necessarily the end of industrial animal agriculture, which I, but though I think that's part of it, of course, but they're the ones with something to gain from this food getting better and understand the stakes of this food getting better because it needs to appeal to everybody because everybody needs to eat less meat or else we're in for a real disaster climactically. And so it's, I really believe that people who, and this is, this goes against proper, like proper journalistic thought, I I suppose, which, but I do think the people who have the stakes personally in something are the ones who need to lead the conversation, you know, and that goes for race, that goes for gender, that goes for class, everything. It's, it's the people who have the experience need to drive the conversation. And, you know, I've seen it in my research as well. It's like, if you read a book by someone who's actively vegetarian or vegan versus when you read a book by someone who's like, oh, I'm studying this from a distance, there's such a difference in the investment level and the depth of, of the conversation. And it's, what's interesting to me too about chefs is that it, Charlie Trotter, who was like, had a restaurant in Chicago, I would say his cookbook vegetables from the mid nineties is probably one of the best vegetarian cookbooks I've ever seen. And, you know, that's someone who took it seriously. And to talk about fine dining again, he was, Grant Ackett's was trained at his, you know, came up under him, then went on to have Alinea. Alinea would always do a vegan tasting menu for you. I don't know if you've been there. No, I haven't, but it's funny because I was about to mention (laughs) (laughs) them like as an example of someone I've heard, like I've had friends who have dined there and I haven't yet. I've only been to Chicago once actually, which is amazing. But yeah, like it's, it's about taking it seriously, like particularly, and you said about 110 things that I want to like get back at. And I wish I'd taken Uh more notes because I was so wrapped up in what you were saying. But I, I do think as someone who's been trying to get like a decent meal without meat in a restaurant for like 20 years. Like you can see, you can see the people who care and take it yeah. seriously. Like all I need is one good dish. And bloody hell, let it not be a mushroom risotto. Like, you know, <laughs> like it's just dude. It's- I talk about this all the time, the risotto problem. People who have never been vegetarian or vegan have no idea. They think that risotto is fantastic and that everyone wants to eat risotto all the freaking time. I'm like, no, I have been to so many fancy meals where they all they did was give me the mushroom risotto and I'm just never going to eat freaking risotto ever again in my life. And like, <laughs> I don't like any food to be ruined for me. Like I love all foods and I'm sure one day I will love risotto again or something, but I got so burnt out on it. Yeah. Like I liked it for like two years because mushroom risotto was a step up from just like a really boring veggie burger that had like corn and peas in it. So Mm -hmm. like fair enough, (laughs) but like I've had some meals that have just blown my mind. And in Vancouver, you know, in Vancouver, we're really lucky. We live in a weird little bubble where the statistic is 40% of folks under the age of 40 are either vegetarian or vegan Oh wow! or trying to be so like, yeah, I can, I can go to the vegan gelato shop. I can go to two completely different vegan pizza restaurants. Like they're totally different. Like one's very Mm -hmm. Italian and one's not, but it's, it is amazing how, yeah, I think we need to be learning. And I think this speaks to like all levels of our society. We need to be learning from the people who are invested and who have been doing this for a while and not just sort of, again, like fall back on, oh, okay. So once this important person says it's important, now it's important. And, you know, I think the biggest challenge is, and actually I would love to hear what you think because we mentioned Beyond Meat mm-hmm. because I, I was like vegetarian for a really long time. Like even growing up on like hippie Vancouver Island, like as a vegetarian, I was a weirdo. They're like, what do you eat? And I was like, veggie dogs and mac and cheese. Like, how is this weird? <laughs> but I never thought in a million years that the plant-based or vegan conversation would be as popular as it is now. And I do think- I mean, not only has the food become so much more creative and, you know, because of people like Amanda Cohen being like, look how delicious this is. (laughs) But I also think in order to get more meat eaters who, again, will feel that eating meat is really critical to their identity and to their lifestyle, it is sort of things like beyond meat or potentially lab grown meats that are going to change their minds about what it means to include animal products in their diet. I'm, I'm curious to know what your thought is on either just like the dupes, like beyond meat and impossible versus, you know, the potential future of lab grown meat. Well, I don't think, and I've been saying this for a while, but now we actually have the data to back it up, but lab meat is never 
going to scale <laughs> at the at the to be affordable and to be to satisfy the the amount of meat that people eat also you know i mean i know they're working on things like bones and cartilage and everything to give things real feel of meat but i think there is an overestimation of how willing a lot of omnivores will be about eating these kinds of products. I think we don't know what the long-term health effects would be of them. And that's another big issue too. And I, I think that also about Beyond and Impossible is I've heard anecdotally that when someone stops eating meat and then eats a ton of those burgers, they will have some health issues that recur that they only had when they were eating meat. And so this is the question is just, does it, is it going to make people feel better? I mean, I see the potential of impossible and beyond in fast food. You know, if we're going to keep continue to have McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's, I think replacing the burgers there and the chicken nuggets there with these products is obviously ideal. You know, um, I just was just reading in the guardian today that McDonald's globally emits more greenhouse gas gases than like a small European nation. And so that's obviously quite problematic. And they slaughter 7 million cows a year in order to satisfy the, the burger demand. So that's where you're, we're going to like really change things is if we get it into the, the fast food, which already is barely, you know, that's not, there's no nutrition concerns when you're talking about fast food necessarily. It is fast food. It is what it is. What you want obviously is to decrease people's reliance on fast food by raising wages, making fresh food accessible, you know, making sure people aren't working two or three jobs just to keep a roof over their heads. So they have time to cook. And so, you know, there's a lot of potential there to change conditions, especially in the, in the immediate kind of as a stopgap in climate change issues. But the thing for me that these do products don't address is that it at heart, it is a cultural problem in the United States specifically that people think meat is necessary to their lives. And this is what my, my book is about. But it's this is a cultural problem. Americans eat 222 pounds of meat per year. People have cut back on beef or they did for a little while. It's going up again. They cut back on beef and then just ate a lot of chicken. So, and we know that those chickens, the conditions are not good. There's tons of antibiotics being pumped into them. They're living miserable lives. We know the people processing the, the meat are working under terrible conditions. And so it's just, that is what needs to change. And I don't think that that changes until people understand the true cost of meat. And in the United States, it's subsidized to such a degree that no one really understands the true cost. And I was talking to university students a few weeks ago, and one of them was like, I know it's wrong, but I eat a cheeseburger every day. <laughs> and he's like, and I was like, you know, the first step is knowing that that's not something you should do for myriad reasons. <laughs> and two, the next thing is to understand that the reason the cheeseburger is so cheap and accessible is that it's not real. That's not the real cost. It's the, uh, the worker who's, you know, from the beginning to the end of that chain, there's just constant exploitation of animals, workers, land, resources that isn't factored into the cost of that burger. And so I was like, imagine it costs $25 to eat a cheeseburger. Would you still eat one every day? And he said, no, that would stop him from it. And so that's what needs to happen is that the real cost needs to be present. And people need to understand that it's because of the ecological cost. It's because of the resources, because an animal's life is being taken. It's because a worker is being paid fairly. And once that's understood, I think that's when we, we get to that cultural moment of, oh, this isn't the way to eat. This has been an experiment, as Francis Moore LePay puts it. The American diet is an experiment of industrial food and reliance on animal protein that is wildly inefficient. And so, yeah, I think that's that's what needs to change. But I certainly see the purpose of tech meat, like beyond an impossible in fast food for, for the moment. Yeah. If people are really willing to make the change. Well, and I think, I think that's a big thing. So, you know, the first thing that, you know, I always think of as a dietitian is like, does someone actually have the privilege of choosing their food? 
And, you know, like what you said back then, and I'm, so my Canadianness will again show because minimum wage is something like $15 an hour here. So like you mentioned tipped wage. So in an industry where people get tips, the minimum wage is two bucks. Yeah. See that, that (laughs) just is like, I, you know, I I love America. I really do. And there's like, (laughs) I feel like the great, like the highs and the lows are greater, you know, yeah. like the, the, the genius and the like technology and the capacity of America is like in many ways, so much greater than in Canada. Cause we're, we're, we, we ride that middle ground, but one of the <laughs> reasons we ride that middle ground is the social safety net, right? Yes. Like we expect that. And $15 an hour in Vancouver is not a living wage. I think the living wage in the city would be something like $24 an hour, but we want what we want when we want it. We want it as cheap as possible because we want to have as much as possible. And so this idea that people really need to be willing to give up something, yeah, you know, give up their ability to accumulate so many things, give up their ability to eat meat three meals a day just because they want it. Yeah. Self-sacrifice. And and I think like with COVID too, like, you know, you watch like people hoarding toilet paper, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and you realize when like the chips fall, sometimes people are actually really not willing to like sacrifice a little bit for the collective. And so, you know, sometimes I get a little bit, you know, hopeless, but then at the same time, we're having these conversations and more people are engaging with meatless meals and plant-based options than ever before. So, you know, there's always that push and pull in my mind of hope, but it is very much like the structure of the reason why that cheeseburger can be so cheap is because, you know, like it's been really cheap and sometimes free to totally degrade nature, right? It's like that forest will let you cut it down for free to build grazing land. And, you know, we will subsidize the soy that becomes feed for those animals when that soy could feed many, many, many more humans and will be better Mm -hmm. for their health too, you know? And I think the subsidies, yeah, we don't talk about the subsidies enough. And I think, I think I was listening to you on another podcast in terms of like the, the volume of subsidies, like what we give things like soy and meat and dairy industry versus, versus like fruits or vegetables, like, and, and Canada's is exactly the same. Like our food guide here in Canada was recently changed to like much fanfare because finally it was going with the evidence and not industry to promote more plant-based diets. And so we have like one branch of government, Health Canada, strongly promoting more plant-based approaches to eating. And then we have an agricultural system continuing to prop up. Yep animal supported agriculture, particularly in the dairy industries, because we have a quota system here where supply and demand is augmented and minimum (laughs) prices are also set for farmers, which I would love to see for carrots, but that's happening for dairy here. (laughs) (laughs) So in, you know, in terms of, you know, as individuals, what are some of the things that you think? Cause I know not everyone's going to go vegan. Like that's just, yeah. it's, it's not going to happen. And I'm the only plant-based person in my family at all. And so I'm raising two omnivores, but to them, they think meat is something you have maybe once or twice a week. Like we get mm-hmm. some takeout on Friday night and like, that's when they eat meat. Cause I feed them completely vegan meals at the dinner table. So what do you think for people listening to this who are like, yeah, so this is important to me. This makes me mad. <laughs> I want to <laughs> change things but I just know I'm not going to go vegan. Like what are some things you think that we can do to advocate for better worker conditions or improve food systems in our own way? Well, I am not a person who says voting helps because in the U S we know that it really helps very little. What I'm always saying is you know, make as many changes for yourself that you're comfortable with that are in service to the ideas that you want to see in the world, not to use the, not to use the quote, be the change that you want to see in the world. But at the same time, yes, do that. I think that it's important to, to wake up every day and feel personal agency in the way you live your life and have it reflect your values. And I think that that makes you feel better and that makes you radiate your own choices out into your own community among whether that's among your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. And that's very, very important. I think we can't undervalue that the effects that we can have as individuals on our communities, because people are always like, well, it's not an individual problem. It's systemic. And it's like, well, what do you think the systems are composed of? The systems are us. The systems are the decisions that we make. Of course, 
in you know in the industry has too much power corporations have too much power the world makes it too easy for all of us to make decisions that don't reflect our values but at the same time if we have the ability to actively make one or two choices in a day that reflect our values and that are in service to the world we want to live in i think we should make those changes a priority and not just say it's got to be up to someone else it's got to be up to you know, politicians who are mostly ineffectual and lining their bone pockets. And so it's got to come from that, that individual level and that individual decision, because that's, what's going to make community change. And I think that thinking on a small scale, whether that's, you know, politically or in terms of, you know, organizing or active, like thinking smaller is where we have the biggest impact. And, you know, you're not going to like, by yourself, take down Walmart. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, you can try and build, you know, a community in your life that is more oriented to supporting small, that is more oriented toward eating with sustainability in mind, that is more oriented to, you know, a mutual aid of sharing what you have. And, and maybe that means, you know, someone else gives you what they have. And that's, you know, just building alternative worlds that we can use to get ourselves toward the world we actually want to live in, I think is, is so important. And, you know, and I love that because I think it's really easy. And I mean, quite honestly, life is a lot, (laughs) like life is a lot. I'm, I'm feeling like it was already a lot. And then the last two years, it's like a lot, a lot. And it's really easy just to be like, you know, like I'm just, (laughs) <laughs> just need to order DoorDash and I just yeah. need to sit down in front of Netflix. But when when you break it out and it's not absolutes, it's not like this is the way you will be forever. It's like, no, what's that one thing that I can do today? I can go to the like neighborhood green grocer mm-hmm. that's owned by some family who lives like four blocks from me and I can buy my food there today. Yeah. Or, you know, like I can choose the veggie burger today. Right. It doesn't yeah. mean I'm never going to have a beef burger, but I can do it today. And it's like, yeah. if, every single one of us is doing one or two things every day like that actually does create a groundswell. I mean, the whole, you know, trend for vegan foods and explosion in vegan food technology is there because consumers are like, Hey, I'm into this. So Mm -hmm. I do, I do agree that like, particularly these days, like where we put our money, where we choose to spend our money when we have it is like, Mm -hmm far more powerful than probably who we like X off a little chart (laughs) a couple of times a year. Yeah. I love that. So I want to talk a little bit because you (laughs) you're on deadline and you do have a book coming out. So tell us a little bit about what it's going to be. So I have built it as many different things while I've been writing it for a year and a half. I've been writing it in very tiny bursts because frankly, I had a very small advance that no one could ever write a book on (laughs) unless they had a rich spouse or parent or something. And so I, it is a book about centering. Okay. So there's lots of books about meat and what meat means, what, why we eat meat, why we're obsessed with meat, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a book about when people don't eat meat. That's it. Like, I think that that's just, that's at the end of the day, it's a book about what does it mean when we don't eat meat? when we decenter meat in our lives. And because that's like really my goal with being a food writer as well. You know, I have, my main goal, I think is just to write nice sentences, but at the end of the day, also, I would like to get people to simply realize that they don't have to make meat the center of their lives and the center of their diets. And if they do that, like so much more opens up to them. And I, I, that's, that's all I want to influence people to do. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a book about not eating meat. <laughs> I love that. Cause there's actually a lot more to unpack there than people who eat meat. Yes. I think there is. <laughs> yes. Oh, there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be very eye opening when yeah. people, when people crack it. Okay. Sure. Um, Alicia, you're amazing. I'm super <laughs> fangirling over here. I close every episode with five rapid fire questions that my sure. guest is not aware of, but they're all softballs. I mean, sometimes okay. there's a little less than a softball, but they're softballs. Okay, <laughs> so here goes. I just got your newsletter about your vegan coquito, which is absolutely going to be my holiday drink project because <laughs> almond Bailey's really isn't that good. And I miss no. creamy stuff. <laughs> um, so what is one of the best things that you've eaten this week? Yesterday had 
samosas at a at a new restaurant in a bar around the corner from my house where they used Indian spices, but they used local Puerto Rican ingredients in the samosas, viandas, which are root vegetables, gandules, which are pigeon peas. And so it was really, really amazing. That sounds good. <laughs> That's right up my alley. Okay. The next one is until your book comes out, what is one book that you know, if someone is really inspired listening to this and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to learn more so I can do more. What's one book about food systems or the way we consume meat in our culture that you would recommend someone read and then eat differently afterwards? (laughs) (laughs) Diet for a small planet 50th anniversary edition just came out and I have a recipe for cookies in it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. I'm going to have to pick up the new edition then. Okay. Next one. So you've been to Montreal. Where is the next place that you would like to travel to saying we could travel anywhere we like soon? I, well, I'm going to New York, home to New York for Christmas. So that's my next trip. But the place I would love to go is Italy. I think I've just been dreaming about Italy the entire pandemic, just desperate, desperate, desperate to go. They know, they know how to live. So yeah. Very, I've been watching because I have, I have two kids. And so I watch a lot of cartoons and, uh, I'm obsessed with Luca right now uh-huh. because it takes place in this like idyllic little, like Italian seaside village. Oh, nice. and I just, yeah. Like, yeah. That's my Italian <laughs> vacation in my head right now is Luca because parent life. <laughs> Someone's Substack newsletter other than your own that you highly recommend. Well, I think more people subscribe to it than mine, but Vittles is, you know, the, some of the best food work coming out today and their next season is on food production. And I am just absolutely so excited about it. Vittles is fantastic. I'm yeah. a Vittles subscriber. Your cooking, do you listen to a podcast or music? Music. Ooh, what are you listening to? Well, right now I'm listening to my top songs of 2021 playlist on shuffle because those are what I've what it, what I've enjoyed this year. But my top bands are always Soda Stereo, which is a band from Argentina, or Not a Surf, which is a band from New York. So those are always my top my top two at the end of the year. <laughs> That Spotify wrapped is so I, I read this morning, someone saying Spotify wrapped is really just a cool way of telling you that they're spying on you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I, there are worse things to spy on me for, you yeah. know, <laughs> I'm very proud of my music choices. I'm okay yeah. if everybody knows it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule especially pre-deadline. I've been there many times. I know exactly (laughs) what that feels like to talk to us. I'm so excited to share your work with even more people. Good luck with deadline. Thank you so much. Have a great one. These kind of conversations really fire me up and make me so hopeful for the future that we can examine and reimagine all of these cultural norms and make choices that deliver equity for others and help save the planet we call home makes me feel like we really do have a future and that that future can be better than our past. And I know the last couple of years can feel like a literal dumpster fire, but knowing that I have the power to make real change, whether it's by making a different food choice or directly supporting those who are building a better food culture and a more sustainable future, it makes me feel like I have power and I have agency and I'm not just on this ride at other people's whims. We really are all in this together and we can all make a difference. And I hope that makes you feel good too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and Tracy Ramsey and edited by Brian McCalman. We are grateful to live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, Stolo, and tsleil peoples. Until next week, friends, be well. Be well.